Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. So I thought I would just riff a little bit today on the role of the COO and how to actually go out and recruit and hire and retain and onboard a great COO. Now I've been asked a lot over the years to help people with that. So first off, you know, a COO really is the second in command to the CEO. So it can have different titles. You could have a director of operations or a general manager, maybe a VP of operations or perhaps a COO, but the chief operating officer or chief operations officer tends to be the second in command to the CEO. Um, Often you'll have the second in command and they may play the CFO role or CMO role. The reality is the COO takes on all of the roles that the CEO does not like or is not good at. And they try to become almost that yin and yang partnership with the CEO. So for definitions purposes on, on today's podcast, The COO, let's talk about it as the second in command. And again, it's title agnostic. So you want to be careful with the titles that you give out um, in your organization, because the higher the title is, the more the expectations of the person have of what their role is and also the compensation demands they start having as well. So be careful with giving around titles that are too big too soon. You also want your second in command to be able to earn some of those titles. So if you can, you know, if you're a smaller company, um, you know, maybe a million, two million in revenue, give them a, a director of operations title first. If you get yourself to the five, 10 million range, maybe you give them a VP operations and then maybe they can earn the COO by hitting certain objectives or metrics or by just taking on more responsibilities. So that's really what we're talking about today. And be careful with the title. Uh, that you give out. Remember 20 years ago to have a C-level title, you had to be a major player at a major corporation. And nowadays the titles have, um, we've gotten a lot of inflation where you might have a a 15 person company and you're starting to give out C-level titles. You often are giving them out way too early. So that's really the, the, the kind of history of the COO roles tend to be back in the day where you were with a major company and you had to earn those um, those titles, but now we tend to give those out a little bit too soon. Years ago, I was speaking at a Vern Harnish event, and this was a, a Gazelle's event that was being hosted in Atlanta, Georgia. And I came off stage, and this guy, Kevin Lawrence, came walking up to me and he said, Oh my gosh, you're Cameron. And I said, Yeah. He said, I didn't realize that a Cameron was, uh, wasn't was a thing. I said, What are you talking about? He said, I thought a Cameron was kind of like a BHAG or a, a vivid vision. I didn't realize that it was a person. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, well, everybody at this conference has been walking around saying, I need a Cameron. And he goes, I realized they were just talking about you. And, and I guess what had happened was over the years when Brian, who is the founder of 1-800-GOT-JUNK and myself as the COO, had taken the company from 12 employees up to 3,000 employees, we'd gained quite the reputation as that two in a box, you know, the CEO, COO. Um, person. And I had been that second in command and people really wanted to have someone like me in the organization. So I left there 14 years ago. My compensation the year that I left was around 310000 So that's kind of the role of what a COO is usually getting paid. I was plus 300000 and that was 14 years ago. So again, be careful with giving out titles that are a little bit too big and make sure that they they tie in with the roles and responsibilities. When I was the COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Um, At the time when I was leaving the organization, I ran everything in the company except IT and finance. So the call center reported to me, 
um, sales reported to me, franchise sales at that point was reporting to me, our PR departments, our national account sales, our franchising operations, our corporate operations, um, all of our US, Canadian and Australia and, and the UK franchises were all kind of reporting up into me. So there's a lot of operational scope. And then Brian ran IT and finance and I reported into Brian as his COO. So before you hire a COO, remember that often what you're doing as an entrepreneur is you're trying to get a lot of the tasks and administrivia off your plate. So if you don't have a true second in command yet, the first thing you want to make sure you hire is an executive assistant. So if you don't have an EA, an executive assistant, you are one, really think about making sure that you hire an executive assistant first. And then after you get all the administrative work off your plate, then you can try to get some of the higher level projects and higher level roles and responsibilities into a true second in command. The second in command is also a real yin and yang partnership where you really want to make sure that it's a true partnership. There's a lot of trust in between the two people. Um, there's a lot of uh, strong communication happening between those two roles. And it's probably the most critical role inside the organization. The COO's job is to really make the CEO iconic. And the CEO's job is to make sure that all the employees like the COO when the CEO is having to roll out all the tough decisions and the bad decisions. Harvard actually wrote an article years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. It's a really great article if you wanna Google it. And they talk about the seven distinct types of chief operating officers. And if I try to remember what some of them were, there was the, uh, the heir apparent, so that's kind of the person who will eventually be taking over the CEO role. Um, or there was the MVP, right? That the most valuable player on the team was kind of pushed into that role. Or maybe there was a change agent, somebody who really had to change the entire organization. Um, sometimes it is the, um, the partner. Sometimes it's the executor, the person who can just really make sure they get stuff done. But that's what's so different about the COO is it's very different in each company as to what the real roles are of that COO. And again, it's because you are truly the, um, the yin and yang partnership to the CEO that the role can also be so different. So I think of, of any organization, sometimes the COO is very inward facing, right? They're looking at operations and execution and all the SOPs and playbooks. Maybe they're, they're keeping an eye on metrics and dashboards. Sometimes it's very outward facing where maybe they're focusing more on the sales and marketing and PR and the branding and the, the reach and the culture of the organization. Sometimes it's very employee focused. Sometimes it's very engineering or technology focused. So sometimes the COO has IT reporting to it. In some cases, they don't. Sometimes the COO has finance reporting to it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it has sales and marketing to it. Again, it's because of that yin and yang partnership that the role begins to get so different in each of the organizations. I think about a friend of mine, Harley Finkelstein, who is the COO for Shopify. Harley's very outward facing. He's very sales and marketing and business development. And in other cases, there's COOs who don't do any sales and marketing whatsoever. They're very inward facing, like Eric Church at 1-800-GOT-JUNK would be a very inward facing COO who's all about operations and execution and you know the, the corporate ops of the company where Brian would still probably lead a lot of the sales and marketing and outreach of the organization now. So that's kind of how the role starts to set itself up. And you need to think about what you're looking for when you're going out to recruit your second in command, you need to think about what kind of role are they really playing? So I really encourage you to read that Harvard article, that misunderstood role of the COO and think about how would you describe your COO in terms of the fit with you? What are the core roles and responsibilities that they're going to be responsible for? And then put in the actual job posting, what areas they are not responsible for, the areas that will report to you. So there's a lot of clarity around job and roles and responsibilities and, and so that the COO candidates know what they're signing up for. 
you also want to make sure that you have very measurable, tangible kind of outputs that they're responsible for so that they can see what it is they're signing up for, what it is that they're going to be responsible for and how they're going to be measured in their success. And then I also believe that you really need to engage an executive search firm to help you poach COOs. In no cases is a COO out there looking for a job, right? Most COOs are already running a company. They're already actively engaged. Maybe they're already really happy with what they're doing in their job. And I think you need to get an executive search firm to go out there and help you poach the actual people uh, and bring them in for the job. I also like getting the job posting rewritten by a copywriting firm. Really get a great copywriter to take your job posting and make it pop off the page so that it polarizes. It should really pull the right candidates into your organization and it should also push some of the wrong candidates away from the job as well. You really wanna make sure that the candidates really see themselves in the job or they go, hell no, there's no way I would wanna have anything to do with that organization. And that's why you wanna get the copywriter to help you with that is the real idea there is to polarize so that you only attract in the right candidates and you're pushing the wrong ones away. You also want to make sure in your interviewing stages that you're really looking for a few things. The first thing you're looking for is really strong culture fit with the CEO and with the leadership team, with the rest of the organization. Really make sure that this person is not going to cause any major ripples when they come into the organization, right? Any major um, new team member that you bring into your company, they'll get the job done, but they're also going to cause some negative ripple effects and some good ripple effects, right? It's like the butterfly effect. So you want to make sure that the culture fit is really strong before you bring that person into the organization so that they don't actually upset the culture that you're building. You also want to make sure that they have the right personality profile to sync with the CEO. So one of the personality profiles that I'm a big fan of is the Colby A profile. And the Colby, it's K-O-L-B-E, K-O-L-B-E profile. Um, that shows you the way that the person likes to start projects or the way they initiate things. So we have all of our members of the COO Alliance fill out a Colby profile. And we also have their CEO complete the Colby A profile. What's interesting about most entrepreneurial CEOs is they have a very high third number and they're called a quick start. So Colby is a series of four numbers. Uh, mine happens to be 4393. So I'm very entrepreneurial, very much a quick start, even though I was very operational in my time at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I'm a bit of an anomaly. I actually wouldn't be a great COO for most companies. I'm very, very good in the early, early stage, but I was exceptional at 1-800-GOT-JUNK because it was the third franchise company that I'd built. But most COOs have very high first two numbers. So the first number is what they call fact finder. And that's a, a person who likes to ask a lot of questions before they start or initiate a project. They are, are into finding out all the facts. So they entrepreneurial CEO might say, hey, we should do this. The true fact finding COO will come in with seven or eight or nine questions to uncover more insights and to get inside the why and, and what the CEO is really looking for so that when they start the project, they don't need to come back and ask more. The second number is what's called follow through. I think it's actually a bit misnamed. It really should be called like a systems person. And that second high number is someone who likes to put a systems in, in place or a playbook in place or, you know, even a checklist before they'll start the project. And that's really critical in the COO's role is you want people who think in terms of understanding the full project, they understand how everything syncs together, and they understand how they're going to be able to put the systems in place or the company can so that things can scale, right, for automation and optimization. And then the high fourth number is someone who likes to have all of the, um, the models or the tools in place before they start a project. So I like doing a Colby A profile as part of the interview process for COOs to make sure that they have very high first two numbers 
And then sometimes even get Colby to do a match between the CEO and COO to see how they feel that fit is. That's how I, one of the ways I try to assess the personality fit um, with, with each other. So you're really looking for a COO who isn't exactly like the CEO, but that you get along, you want to hang out. Maybe, maybe you've got similar hobbies. You certainly would like to hang out and have beers or, or lunch together. Um, but you're not looking for someone who's exactly like you in terms of the hiring. When you're bringing in a COO into the organization, you're going to want to get a number of people from different business areas to actually interview the candidates or the final candidates as well, because you're looking for, again, that culture fit and you're looking for the skill set and the person has actually done what you need them to do. So when you're hiring a COO, be very weary of hiring a bunch of MBAs who might have the theory of doing things, but haven't yet done it. I always like to err in the favor of people who have actually done it before, right? So if I have a list of the core projects that we need to get done in the first year, that the CEO candidates that I'm bringing in have actually done that work before, they're really, really good at doing it, and that you can actually predict pretty carefully that they're going to be able to do that again. So I make sure that we screen for that in the interviewing and that hiring process as well. In the onboarding, what you want to make sure you're doing when you're bringing that COO candidate into the organization is keep your eye on the ripple effects. Keep your eye very, very careful on every project that they put in place and any of the good ripples that they cause or the bad ripples that they cause. Keep an eye open for any of the discussions that they're having with other team members and any of the good or, pause or negative ripple effects that they're causing. So don't focus exclusively on making sure that they get up to speed. They will. They're a great hire. You've hired somebody who's solid. You've hired someone who's a good culture fit and, and has the skills to do what you need them to do. They're going to get up to speed. What your job is, is to also take a look at some of the ripple effects that they will cause throughout the organization as well. Now, if I remember, I will uh, link this next bit into the show notes. It's from um, a COO that I interviewed on our show about a year ago, Matt. And Matt is the COO for a company called Rippling. Matt actually wrote the user manual to himself. So he was the COO for a company. He wrote a three-page Word document that was the user manual to him. And it taught all of his direct reports about the good sides and the bad sides of Matt. It taught them how he worked with each other, things that he demanded, what would drive him crazy, what would piss him off, um, how to communicate with him, how to gain insights from him, et cetera. And I thought it was a really great insight that if you're bringing on a COO into your organization, imagine if they wrote a user manual for themselves and they distributed that out to the company and that out to their direct reports to get everyone up to speed earlier so they really knew more about that COO and how to work with them instead of having to learn that over the next six months. Next part you wanna make sure is you have again, very, very clear roles and responsibilities and very clear reporting as well. So you really, everyone knows who's reporting into the COO, who's reporting into the CEO, you know what um, key metrics that they're responsible for, and you know any of the responsibilities that they have in their day-to-day -day lives as well. The way that you're gonna best leverage a COO is to be gaining their insights and comments along the way to allow them to almost save the CEO from themselves, right? CEOs by, uh, by nature are you know, perpetual motion machines. They have tons and tons of ideas. They're always creating these new ideas. And the COO's job is to ask questions and put the systems in place to decide when to put those ideas in place, right? When to start those new projects, how to best actually put those new projects in place and how to get the projects up to speed without taking up a ton of resources or distracting the team and the company from all of the other competing priorities. So you really want to leverage the COO 
by allowing them to help slow things down so that all of the projects are built in the right order. You know, if you think about building a home, for an example, everyone wants to put in the beautiful wolf stove and the, the sub-zero fridge and, you know, put up the beautiful cabinets in the kitchen. But the reality is you have to put the foundation in first and then you need to put up the walls. And after you put in the walls, you put in the electrical and the plumbing. And if we're so focused about just getting that new sub-zero fridge put in, you might put it in six months before it's supposed to be there. And that's often what the role of the COO is, is to figure out which projects to put in place first, which projects to get done and out the door. I always call it minimum viable everything so that the momentum creates more momentum and that so that you don't take up a lot of the time, people and money to get a lot of these projects up to speed and out the door. And that's really the role of that COO is to help figure that out, to help recruit people and grow people inside the organization and make sure that you can actually, you know, how do you get more done with less people faster is the role of that COO. I like as the as the COO and CEO to make sure that we have meetings to stay in sync, almost like a date night idea. You know, I remember years ago when I was um, co-founding a, a franchising group for an auto body chain, we were building out a chain called Boyd Auto Body in Canada and Coast to Coast Collision Centers in Canada. It's now called Gerber Auto Collision in the US. And at the time, Terry, who was the CEO, um, I said to Terry that I really wanted to have a weekly meeting with him for a half hour. He said, well, I don't need one. And I said, no, no, I need one. Like, I actually need time with you to talk about any of my frustrations, to talk about our growth, to talk about any problems that I'm having, to brainstorm, and even just to stay in sync. So the role of that meeting between the CEO and COO is to allow you to stay in sync, right? So that during the week, you don't keep sending each other stream after stream of, of messages or Slack messages or emails or voicemail messages. You're, you are actually spending time on a weekly basis to go through all of your ideas, all of your problems, and actually work through them together and have that regular pulse. I also like to have time to get out of the office together. So as the CEO and COO, you actually get out of the office and spend a little bit of time together building that relationship and building more trust and again, staying in sync. It is all about really having that clear communication and clear trust between the two. But one of the core roles of the COO is to also tell the CEO when they're not doing the right thing when the CEO is making mistakes. So the COO's one of their roles is to show the CEO the blind spots that they may have, but to do it in a way that it doesn't destroy trust in the organization. So the key is to be able to do it behind the scenes, either at your weekly meeting or when you're offsite working together, but do it in a way that you actually are doing it one-on-one -on -one with the CEO. So they know that you're almost the, the person that's saying that, you know, that the, um, the emperor has no clothes. It's really that you might be the only person in the organization who's ever going to tell them what's really going wrong, but they need to hear that. They just don't want you doing that in front of the board or in front of the rest of the members of the leadership team, but they do want to trust that you're also going to tell them the bad stuff as much as the good stuff as well. I also believe that one of the core roles of the COO is to really grow people. The more the COO focus on growing the skills and the, um, the leadership skills of their team. It's funny, I actually launched a course recently called Invest in Your Leaders. And that's because I think like a COO, that the more I invest in growing my managers and growing my leadership team's skills, the more they'll grow the company. So the COO needs to constantly be thinking about what skills do the people need over the next 12 months to get all these projects completed? What skills are we going to need to develop as the company grows, as you go from 30 people to 100 or from 100 to 300? You know, what new skills are they going to need throughout the organization and making sure that you're building those skill sets and capacities across your teams is critical for the COO to think about. 
the COO's job is to shine the spotlight on the CEO to make them look good. I used to say that my job at 1-800-GOT-JUNK was to make Brian iconic. My job was to take the bad decisions and roll them out, to be the one rolling out the tough decisions, to be the, a bit of the hard ass, to be the person saying no when Brian was able to say yes and be kind of that that iconic person inside the organization. And then Brian's job or CEO is to shine the spotlight on the COO to make them look good when we are doing, you know, that tough stuff when we're rolling out the harder decisions. When you need to just think about in your growth is at some point, everybody has to be replaced, right? Unless the person continually raises their skills, um, at some point, the company might just be bigger than they've ever been able to manage. This is usually true in a hyper growth company. So if you're only growing by five, 7% a year, people can pretty much stay in their jobs forever because their skills will increase at the same rate that the company is growing. But if your company is growing as we were at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, six consecutive times of 100% revenue growth. So we had 100% growth year after year for six consecutive years. At some point, the company had outgrown my skills. And that was really in six and a half year mark. Brian had to pull me aside and say, hey, I think you were the right guy to get us from 2 million to 100 million, but you're not the right guy to go from 100 million to the billion. And it was absolutely the right decision to look to bring on the next COO into the organization. So they ended up replacing me with uh, the former president of Starbucks. She came in and said, wow, what a cute little company. Meanwhile, I was pulling my hair out thinking that it was, you know, a massive, massive company that I was trying to run. Turns out she was the wrong fit. She was not the right culture fit for the organization, which I go back to at the beginning, that it's critical that you bring somebody in who's the right culture fit and the right skill set. Uh, now they actually have found somebody who I've known for 34 years is their new COO. He's been there for nine years and he's taken them from about 100 million up to about 400 million now. His name's Eric Church and Eric was the COO um, started again nine years ago. He would have been terrible from the 2 million mark to the 100 million where I was, but he was definitely the right person to go from the 100 million to the 400 million. So it's all about having that right skill set and that right trust and communication and the right culture fit in the organization and knowing when you need to top grade and bring on the next person into the organization. So those are some thoughts for you. I thought I would just riff a little bit on some of my thoughts on the COO and how to recruit one, how to bring them into your organization. Um, if you have questions or comments about this stuff, you know, you can ping me on Facebook or LinkedIn, or you can email me at Cameron at CameronHerald.com. Hopefully you like this podcast. If you want to like and subscribe and share it with your friends on iTunes, that would be great. And also check out the Invest in Your Leaders course. It's at investinyourleaders.com. And then also check out the COO Alliance and the CameronHerald.com websites as well. But thanks very much. Hope that was valuable for all of you. Again, if you want to like, subscribe and share the podcast, that would be great. And hopefully we'll see you inside the Invest in Your Leaders course or the COO Alliance soon. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.